Well, I'm interested to see how this new pulpit preaches, so I'll have to give it a test run this morning. It's always a little different coming from uh, new optics, so it'll, it'll take a little bit here, but uh, I'm looking forward to it, actually, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the new pulpit, and uh, I know that, that uh, the church is uh, as well. Even if it takes us a couple of Sundays to get used to it, I think it fits the space perfectly, so I'm uh, very appreciative of that. Let's uh, bow once more as we prepare to hear from God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and I pray that this morning, once again by your spirit, you will speak through it to each one of us. I pray that you would give me the power, Lord, to speak this word clearly and boldly as I should. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 10, the passage that Henry read for us just a few minutes ago. Matthew chapter 10. The setting of this passage is that Jesus is giving his 12 disciples some final instructions before sending them out on their first missionary journey apart from him. Uh, In relative terms for today, you could think of this as their first practicum in their school of discipleship. Many of you may be familiar with schools of discipleship where there's there's hands-on training for people in, in Bible instruction and in leadership skills for ministry, and at a certain point they're going to have a practicum where they're sent out to put these skills into practice. And so this is exactly what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 10. The disciples have been following their rabbi around Galilee for some time, watching him work, so to speak, watching him perform miracles, listening to him teach, and all of his private instruction sessions with them. And so now Jesus decides that it's finally time for these 12 students of his to go out and to personally put into practice what they've been learning. But make no mistake about it, far from uh, Intro to Missions 101 or some light field trip, this was going to be a real immersive, intensive trip that they were about to head out on. Because far from being just a small taste of ministry with no real obstacles, instead Jesus empowers and instructs his disciples to go head to head against the powers of Satan and sickness and sin and even death itself. In chapter 10 and verse 1, we read this introduction. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Then we jump ahead to verse 7. Jesus instructs them. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now the list Jesus just gave his disciples, this isn't small time stuff, is it? He's saying cast out demons, heal the sick, and he even says raise the dead. So this is as real as it gets what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. Now, hearing all of this, the 12 disciples, we can't help but imagine we're excited, to say the least, when Jesus says, you're going to be doing these sorts of things. But then Jesus also tempers their excitement with a stark warning. He says it's not going to be easy. In verses 16 to 17, he tells them this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. 
Then we jump ahead to verse 22, and he states this. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were one of the 12 disciples hearing these warnings that day, I'd probably have been shaking in my boots. This is scary stuff. Being arrested, being flogged, being dragged in front of the council, elders, and things like that, and then finally having all men hate you because of Jesus. This is scary stuff. And one can just imagine how the disciples must have been internally processing all of this as they're hearing Jesus' words. We can imagine doubting Thomas thinking, does he really expect us to do all of that? And he probably looked over at the fishermen and and the other uneducated ones amongst the bunch and thinking, are we really going to pull this off? Jesus expects this of us. And we can imagine his internal doubts. Or Judas Iscariot thinking, I didn't sign up for being hated. Or perhaps Simon Peter confidently with great bravado thinking, yes, we got this, Jesus, but secretly deep down wondering, can I really handle being arrested and flogged and thrown in prison? Whatever their anxieties and fears were, Jesus, of course, knew exactly what they were, each one of them. Knowing the hearts of all men, knowing their thoughts, Jesus knew his disciples' fears. And so right there in the middle of his instructions, in the middle of his warnings, Jesus gives them not one, not two, but three do-not-be-afraid statements. And that's what I want to focus our attention in on this morning. Jesus gives three do-not-be-afraid statements that the disciples could hold on to, and I believe that we as modern-day disciples can hold on to as we go out in Jesus' name. Because just like the twelve disciples, when God calls us to do something, when Jesus speaks to us, "I, I have a job for you, I want you to do something, we, like the disciples, are not immune to fear. And we all deal with different worries, anxieties, and fears, and... If left unchecked, those worries and fears can paralyze us, and they can keep us from doing what Jesus has called us to do. One of the most majestic of all creatures is the tiger. For many years, these big, beautiful creatures have puzzled researchers. It seems that when tigers hunt, they have a remarkable capacity for causing their prey to literally paralyze with fear. As the tiger charges towards its prey it lets out this spine-chilling roar. Now, hearing this roar, you would think the tiger would be giving itself away too early. It should remain silent to cover more ground before it can tackle its prey. But instead, as soon as it bursts from cover, it lets out this massive roar. Now, you would think, hearing the roar, the prey would instinctively turn and run for their life. But instead, quite often what actually happens is the prey will hear the roar and they will freeze on the spot. Scientists couldn't figure out why this was happening. Until at the Fauna Communication Research Institute in North Carolina, they discovered why. The tiger's roar emits sound waves that are audible and inaudible. The inaudible sound is at a frequency so low that you can actually feel it. And so as the tiger emerges from the undergrowth, the flash of its colors, the sound of its roar, and then the impact of the unheard but felt sound waves all combine to provide an all-out assault on the senses. 
And so the effect is that the animal is momentarily paralyzed by this onslaught of stimulation. And so it is literally paralyzed by fear. And even though there may still have been time to escape, if they had first ran when they heard the roar, they are instead stunned and standing there long enough for the tiger to leap and to take him down to the ground. Now our fears often operate in the same way. The onslaught of the fear, sometimes if it's just one fear, well, then we could handle it. But if it's two, or if there's three, they all combine to have this paralyzing effect on us. And we consider all of the things that could go wrong if we actually follow through on what God is calling us to do. And instead of acting, we stand still. And we're paralyzed into inactivity. And so let me ask you, what are you afraid of? What scares you? We heard some of the children's fears here this morning, fear of the dark, uh, fear of cars, I think, was one of them. Garter snakes, that was another one. Anyone here afraid of garter snakes? Okay, what about real snakes? Okay, there's there's an honest man right there. What are you afraid of? Well, the Greek word for fear is phobos, and that's, of course, where we get our word phobia from. There are at least 254 recognized forms of phobia, which is defined as, if you didn't know, phobia is defined as the extreme or irrational fear of something. Now, according to a 2015 survey conducted by the Fearless Challenge, the top five fears of Canadians are these. Number one, snakes. So, Dennis, you're in good company. The number one fear of Canadians is snakes. And I've never got that because all we have are garter snakes. We don't even have boa constrictors or things like that, although I have heard of them escaping and wandering around cities before. The number two fear of Canadians is fear of heights, also known as acrophobia. And by the way, uh, fear of snakes is known as arachnophobia. Uh, Number three, pardon me, no, spiders is arachnophobia. Uh, Number three is public speaking. Fear of public speaking, which is known as glossophobia. Uh, Fear number four is the fear of spiders, arachnophobia. And fear number five is fear of tight spaces or claustrophobia. Does anyone identify with any of these five? More hands going up? Okay. These are quite common. Now, of course, when it comes to putting our faith into action, like the disciples were being called to do, our fears are much more complex than simply being afraid of something. But whatever our fears are, like with the 12 disciples that day, Jesus knows our fears. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our anxieties. And so I want you to picture today that the Lord Jesus, knowing your fears, knowing your thoughts, wants to speak to you these words. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Let's take a closer look at his three powerful reasons for why the disciple of Jesus Christ need not fear anything or anyone. Reason number one. Or pardon me, uh, fear number one. You don't need to be afraid of what people say about you. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 to 27. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, 
proclaim from the rooftops. So here we see that Jesus reminds his disciples that he, their rabbi, their master, has been personally called Belzebul. Now we read of this incident in Mark chapter 3 verse 22 where we read, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Belzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now according to Charles Ryrie, Belzebul means lord of the flies, a guardian deity of the Ekronites. And the Jews used it as a nickname for Satan. So for Jesus' enemies to allege that he was possessed by Belzebul was the worst kind of blasphemy because they were saying the miracles he was doing was not the power of God, but in fact, the power of Satan. Now, Jesus, of course, knew that for one of his young Jewish disciples to have his good name dragged through the mud by the ruling religious class, the shame of it would be far more than any good young Jewish man could bear, and he would likely give up. And so the very first thing that Jesus stresses to his young Jewish disciples was that if he, their Lord and Master, their Rabbi, and the Son of God, might I add, has been slanderously called Belzebul, or Satan, by the ruling religious class, then they shouldn't be surprised at receiving similar insults, or fear being slandered in a similar manner. The second thing that Jesus stressed to his disciples was They did not need to fear those who slandered them because the truth would come out in the end. I want you to listen again to his words. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. So what Jesus is promising here is that even though their good name, yes, might be dragged through the mud, yes, in the short term they might be slandered, in the long term they would be fully vindicated. The truth would come out, and so therefore they should be free and bold to shout from the rooftops the words of Jesus without fear. Let me tell you that I know firsthand how so often the fear of criticism can paralyze someone and keep them from pursuing and doing the very things that God has called them to do. And the hard truth is Most of us care more about what other people think or say about us than what God does. If we care more about what man says about us, if we care more about what men think about us than what God does, we have a problem. We have to focus on what God thinks and what God says. And then we may not and cannot fear the criticism of man. Because remember, on Judgment Day, our lives will not be measured by what other people say about us, but about what God says. I want you to listen to the famous words of the late President Theodore Roosevelt. He said this, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, 
at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. This applies to our walk with Jesus Christ. If we dare nothing for our Lord, can we expect to achieve anything for our Lord? Yes, failure is always an option. Someone who said failure is not an option was a liar. (laughs) That's what makes success so much sweeter is because failure is always an option. But if the fear of failure keeps us from trying, we will never achieve anything for our Lord. So let me ask you, is there something that God is calling you to do that you are shying away from for fear of criticism or what people might say about you behind your back or if you fail. My friends, if Jesus had feared the critics and the gossips and the slander and the insults that were hurled at him, he never would have gone to the cross. In fact, as Jesus was achieving the salvation of the world, what did they do? They heaped more insults and ridicule upon him even as he died. And as Jesus said to his disciples... I have yet to read of or hear or meet any man or woman who has done anything great for God without having a few critics and naysayers of their own. So don't fear what people might say. Instead, focus on being obedient to what God has called you to do and trust him to vindicate you in the end. This is the first fear that Jesus points out for his disciples to not fear what man might say. Focus on what God says. Number two, you don't need to be afraid of death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, the fear of death can be a powerful force. In fact, the fear of death has been used by rulers for centuries and millennia to keep their populations in control and under order. If you don't do what we say, we'll kill you. It's a powerful motivator, the fear of death. But when it comes to the child of God, the disciple of Jesus Christ, we need not fear death. Because what Jesus is saying is this, don't be afraid of someone who can kill your body, because that's the worst thing they can do to you. They cannot touch your soul. You see, we are far more than just a physical body. We are a living soul. As C.S. Lewis wrote, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. What you have is a body. Let me say that again. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You see, our eternal soul is who we really are. And physical death cannot destroy our soul. Because long after these physical bodies are dead and buried in the ground, our souls will yet be alive. And the child of God, their soul, will be living forever in the kingdom of heaven. And the Apostle Paul was so convinced of this truth that he wrote, So where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? And he also declared, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What gain did he see out of death? His gain was he would go and be with Jesus. His soul, his eternal soul, would go and be with his Lord. And we can be quite confident that as church history declares, Paul watched his executioners approach at the Circus Maximus in Rome. There was no fear in his eyes. 
He did not fear being beheaded. No, he instead was looking with anticipation because he knew this man was the gateway to him seeing Jesus face to face. Jesus said there was only one that we should fear, and that is God himself. Because God is the only one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. The Bible says to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. But fearing God doesn't mean cringing in terror before him. It means having reverential awe and a loving respect for him. So don't be afraid of those who can kill your body but can't touch your soul. Instead, have a holy, awe-inspiring reverence for God who has saved your soul from hell through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, in Jesus, you can smile at death so that you may live your life fully without fear. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, your victory? The child of God need not fear death. So to recap, number one, you don't need to be afraid of what people say about you. Because just as they insulted Jesus, you can expect the same, knowing that God will vindicate you in the end. Number two, you don't need to be afraid of death, because the worst that someone can do is kill your body, but they cannot touch your soul. And now Jesus' third reason to not be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of anything because God cares about every detail of your life. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, we all know that God so loved the world collectively. But have you ever stopped to realize that the same God who put the stars into place loves you personally? He cares so much for you that Jesus said he has even gone so far as to number the very hairs of your head. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not too big of a feat right now. But even when you were born, (laughs) he had the hairs of your head numbered. What he's getting at is even the smallest details He cares about, and he knows them, every one of them. Now, I want to ask a question. How many hairs are on your head? Does anyone know? Does anyone have a a good guess on how many hairs are on your head? Peter's holding up three fingers. (laughs) Anyone else want to guess? Well, there's, there's someone who's actually gone to the work of trying to figure out how many hairs are on people's Heads. So here are some hairy statistics. If you are a blonde, a real blonde that is, you have approximately 145,000 hairs on your head. If you have black or brown hair like me, you have about 120,000 hairs on your head. And apparently if you're a redhead, you have only 90,000 hairs on your head. And God knows how many hairs are on your head, and this doesn't even begin to tax his omniscience to know these things about you. Now, I don't have the hairs on my head numbered, but God does. And the the point of all of this that Jesus is getting at is that God knows the tiniest details about our lives, things that we don't even know about ourselves. And what's even more astonishing is that God cares. He cares about the smallest details. In 1 Peter 5, verse 7, embracing this truth, Peter declares, Cast all your anxiety upon him, Because he cares for you. 
Do you believe that today? That God cares for you? It's not just your neighbor he cares about. It's not just the world he cares about. It's you he cares about. And he cares about the smallest details of your life. But now, if you're anything like, like me, you might have that small inner voice, that, that doubting voice, the one that perhaps haunted Thomas more often than he cared to admit, that says something like, yeah, but I'm nobody special. And to that, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Now, sparrows are, of course, one of the most common birds in the entire world. You will actually see dozens, possibly hundreds of sparrows, even today, without you even noticing them. You have to make conscious effort to notice sparrows. In fact, it wasn't until I began working on this sermon and looking at this exact verse that I happened to glance out the window of my office and I saw a whole row of sparrows sitting on the power lines outside in the church parking lot. And it took me a second to even realize they were there. I was like, oh yeah, they're sparrows. I don't even see them. They are so insignificant. They aren't known for their beautiful colors or for their sweet songs. Jesus said two sparrows sell for a penny. Well, here in Canada, a penny is our smallest coin. But the actual word Jesus used was for the Greeks' smallest coin, which was known as an Assyrian. An Assyrian held the approximate value of one quarter of one of our pennies. So what he's saying is two sparrows would sell for half a penny. And the point he's making is that sparrows are so common that they hold almost no value, if any. And that still holds true today. I can still remember when I, when I got my first Daisy BB gun. I was so proud of that. And I was going to head out hunting the very first day. And I remember my mom telling me, Now no shooting robins or songbirds or any other nice birds. Just sparrows. <laughs> sparrows were okay, just none of the other ones. It would make far more sense if Jesus had said something like, God knows when each eagle falls. You know, because eagles are, ma- are majestic, they're beautiful. In fact, today, conservationists have gone so far as to number the eagles in North America, and they estimate there are approximately thirty-five to 40,000 bald eagles in the United States and Canada. And there are, as well, strict laws in place to protect the eagles. But who would ever care enough to count the sparrows, or to notice when they fall. I'll tell you who. God, their creator. As someone once said, God attends the funeral of every sparrow. Isn't that something? God attends the funeral of every sparrow. There's a little poem that goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I'd really like to know why these anxious humans rush about and worry so said the sparrow to the robin. I guess that it must be that they have no father such as cares for you and me. Jesus used this illustration to demonstrate how valuable we are to God. If God the Father cares that much about a sparrow, how much more does he care for you and for me? His children, created in his likeness, with his breath of life in our lungs, and an eternal soul within our chests. How much more doesn't he care for you and me? So don't be afraid, Jesus said. You are worth more than many sparrows. The well-known song 
by the name His Eye is on the Sparrow was written by Sevilla Martin, the wife of a Baptist pastor. She described in her own words how she came to write the song. In the spring of 1905, my husband and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York. We contracted a deep friendship with a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, true saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for over 20 years. Her husband was an incurable, incurable cripple who had to propel himself to and from his business in a wheelchair. Despite their many afflictions... They lived happy Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. One day while visiting with the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and how they were so cheerful in spite of their afflictions. And he asked them the secret of their joy in the midst of all of this pain and trials. And Mrs. Doolittle's reply was simple. She said, If his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. And the beauty of this expression of simple faith gripped my heart. And that same evening, I wrote the words for the song. The song goes like this. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. My friends, today, let me encourage you. If you have wondered about if God cares about you, if you are fearful about anything that God is calling you to do, the next time you see a sparrow, and you'll have to take a minute to actually notice you see that sparrow, but you're going to go through this week, you will see sparrows, and when you do, I want you to be reminded of this simple fact. If God sees that sparrow, you can know he's watching you. And not only is he watching, but he cares deeply. So may we not be afraid. May we instead trust our God who watches over us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled that you are mindful of us. That you are mindful of me. That you care about every detail of our lives. That even the the number of hair on our heads is not beyond your care. You know the exact number. You know things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. You know our deepest fears. You know the anxieties that are running around in our minds even right now, this very moment. And Lord, to each one of those fears, to each one of our worries, each one of our anxieties, you speak the words, don't be afraid. I care for you. I am watching over you. I am with you. So instead, be courageous, be bold, be obedient to do what I am calling you to do in this life, knowing that no matter what men may say, no matter what they may do, the worst they can do is kill our bodies, but they cannot touch our eternal souls because those belong to you, and one day they will be with you forever. And so we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us and strengthen us this week. And I pray even, Lord, in advance that when we see a sparrow, we would be reminded of this simple truth, that if your eye is on the sparrow, we know that you are watching me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.